Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. This is Diane Estabrook with McKnight's Home Care Daily Pulse. This is a make or break year for many in the home care industry. Waivers enacted during the COVID-19 pandemic will end. Value-based purchasing will go into effect in all 50 states at the beginning of next year. And home health firms face Medicare payment cuts. The National Association for Home Care and Hospice has been on the front lines fighting some of these changes and preparing members for what could be the inevitable. Katie Weary, Director of Regulatory Affairs for NAC, said Medicare's proposed home health care cut is the biggest issue facing members. We talked about what it could mean to agencies and how they should prepare for it. The proposal for the cut to payment rates is probably the biggest threat to the home health industry in decades. Many are very concerned. We certainly are putting together advocacy campaign on this. Organizations are looking at ways that they're going to be able to stay afloat should there be a cut like this to home health agencies. We could see the closure of many organizations. How punitive is that for the average agency? We are actually currently running numbers right now, so we don't have, I can't give you an exact uh, detail right now, but what we anticipate is that there would be a payment cut, you know, whenever you're losing 7% of your payment, certainly that's going to be a big impact. So we don't know what the total dollar amount would be for organizations. We're running some numbers at the moment. Is there something that agencies should be doing right now to prepare for that in the event that it does go through? Well, certainly um, before it gets finalized, you know, making comments to the proposed rule. We encourage organizations to submit comments directly to CMS, but also to um, do some advocacy with their congressional representatives so that they understand what's happening to these small business organizations, because most home health agencies are small business organizations. You know, what could happen to their population who needs the services if this organization closes? I think they need to do a little bit of that work as well as preparing financially. What type of cut might they see? It may not be as great as what has been proposed, but potentially be greater, I suppose. But if it is not as great, but there is still a cut, what can their organization afford? Um, Do they have cash reserves? Um, do they have a line of credit? If they don't have that already, should they should go out and possibly get that established. You made a comment earlier when we started talking about this that you could see agencies go under. Who are those agencies going to be? I'm guessing these are going to be the smaller companies. I don't think it's necessarily just smaller companies. I think we could certainly smaller companies that don't have those cash reserves would certainly be hit first, I think, and and hardest. But I don't think it's just them. I think considering that we've been dealing with a pandemic and we have significant workforce shortage issues that home health agencies have been dealing with now for a couple of years, the financial situation for those organizations is different than it was several years ago. And I think we're very fragile as an industry and not able to withstand a significant cut. So we could be talking about organizations that are medium-sized, possibly even some large ones, if they have used their cash reserves for other purposes at this time. You brought up the issue of labor, and that is the one 
singular item when we talk to home care agencies that is just the one issue that they can't seem to get their arms around is labor. How much of an issue is that out there? And is there anything from a regulatory or a policy perspective that can be done to address that? Well, it's definitely the top issue that we hear about other than the proposed cuts, of course. But when we're talking with home health agencies about what is their biggest challenge every single day, it is workforce. We are finding that they're having to pay more in order to keep staff, in order to recruit staff. A lot of individuals have simply left the healthcare field. They're no longer interested in working, and that's combined with the aging workforce. There's lots of factors coming together here to impact the workforce shortage. Certainly, when it comes to Medicaid payment rates, for those workers who are dealing with individuals in their home, they're providing, you know, 24-7 care in the home or they're under home and community-based services, the payment rate that the organizations receive from Medicaid directly impacts what they are able to pay those caregivers, and it is abysmal. Some changes need to be made there, for sure. And there was hope when President Biden was elected that Build Back Better was going to address home and community-based services. There was going to be that $400 billion that was going to go into that, that was then winnowed down to $150 billion to help boost those reimbursement rates. Is that off the table now? What is the possibility of that passing Congress and then winding up on the president's desk? I wish I could give you the latest information. I will tell you the most current information is going to come from our legislative folks. I'm more on the regulatory side, so I would um, defer to them. And I can get you that information, but I don't have that with me today. Just to stay on the issue um, for a moment with labor, um, one of the things that we've been looking into when we addressed actually in a story earlier this week, an ongoing series on workforce, is immigration. And a number of organizations, including Leading Age and the Home Care Association of America, are advocating for some sort of a special visa that would address direct care workers. Is that something that NAC would get behind? Yes, I think NAC would get behind that if we um, had all of the necessary precautions in place to make sure that these are qualified individuals and that when they come here, there is the proper training for these individuals. We want them to have all of the education and training that they need so that they can be providing the highest quality care, and we can assure that is happening. So, yes, we're certainly behind those types of efforts to bring individuals here so that more workers are available, but other innovative ways that we can maybe have more workers to pull from is certainly something that we're behind. What are some of the other policy or regulatory issues that you're looking at? Is Oasis E one of them? Where does that stand on your roster of most important things to address? Well, Oasis E certainly is, is new 
come January 1st of 2023, we're just now in the past month or so getting information from CMS about the OASIS-E, the details of that. But in the proposed rule, CMS is proposing that home health agencies would collect the OASIS-E for all payer types. Now, we understand or believe that this would be strictly for adults, that they're not going to have this for pediatric patients or maternity patients because the pediatric patients and maternity patients right now are excluded from OASIS. We don't think that would change, but we would like to get confirmation from CMS about that. But what we do anticipate is submitting comments for the OASIS-E being used for all payers. We know that this is an initiative that CMS has been looking at for a couple of years. They've been talking about this for quite some time now, and we see it here in the proposed rule. We're certainly going to be getting some feedback from our providers and formulating comments and submitting those. You talked about what's new for 2023, and obviously value-based care is coming. And we, we hear from CMS that the nine states that were involved in the pilot actually overperformed when they were using that new payment model. But clearly, this could be difficult for some agencies. How well prepared are these agencies for the onslaught of value-based care? We've been getting a lot of questions from organizations that have not been part of those original nine states. Lots of questions. And one of the things that we are recommending strongly is that providers um, avail themselves of the resources that are available from the website currently. And I've noticed that even some providers don't even know which website to go to. So they want to make sure that when they're Googling home health value-based purchasing, that they include the term expansion, the value-based purchasing expansion, because that will get them to the correct website. And on that website, there are newsletters that do have some detailed information for them, such as how the scoring is going to work. What are the quality measures going to be? How will their payment potentially be impacted? CMMI has not really put out a lot of information other than what's on the website. And a lot of people don't know about that website. So we are directing individuals there. CMMI is not looking to NAC or other associations to disseminate information. They want the providers to go directly to that site. So we do recommend that they do that. We are also offering education as many others are. We are doing um, here in July at our financial managers conference, we're going to be doing evaluation purchasing a pre-conference intensive. And we know that there's other education being offered by consultants as well, but we encourage home health agencies to take full advantage of the education that is presented to them because there are so many components to this very complex formula that is being used and they need to understand all of the components. They need to be able to understand why they are currently performing on some of those measures where they are and what they can do to impact performance before we go live with all of this. That's a very good point. And if there is, I'm guessing if there is an area that they see right now where they're weak, that's something that they can address immediately to move the needle a little bit when this takes effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every little bit of movement that they can make is, is helpful. 
Are you getting a sense that there's one particular element of that that's going to be a sticking point for agencies? Honestly, no. We, um, I think it really depends on the organization and just fully understanding how the value-based purchasing program is going to work. And once they have a full understanding of all the components, we think they'll be okay. Our biggest fear is that they don't understand the complexity of it and all the different parts. One of the things, I'm going to pivot a little bit again. One of the things that we've been hearing a lot of, um, that some of the things that have been crossing my desk come from the Department of Labor. And last week, we saw a home health agency in Ohio agree to pay 134000 in back wages because it had been misclassifying employees as contract workers instead of staff. And in making the announcement, the DOL said that these violations are all too common in home health. From your perspective, is there a problem with the way the law might be written, or is the Labor Department just being overly aggressive now in going after some of these agencies? Well, first of all, I'm not a personnel attorney, so let me let me clarify that right away and qualify myself here. Um, and I really do recommend that organizations that have a lot of independent contractors as caregivers do get an assessment done by a personnel law attorney because the law is often misunderstood. And there's not, you know, a list of things that we can point to and say, make sure you do A, B, and C this way, and then you have an independent contractor, or if you do C, D, and E this way, then it's an employee. It's not quite that clear cut. So there's a lot of misunderstanding of that classification. And when somebody qualifies as an independent contractor, in addition to that, I think there's been um, some confusion created because the Department of Labor under the Trump administration had some different requirements. And then with the Biden administration, they were tightening those up a little bit. And there's some confusion around exactly how this is supposed to be applied. So definitely recommend the assessment by an attorney. But I would say what folks really need to be looking at is just because somebody may be classified as an independent contractor at one time, doesn't mean that that might change over a period of time. So it's a good idea to constantly be auditing to make sure that the individuals who you do have classified as independent contractors truly still are independent contractors. So for instance, they may have come in, they may have, when they first started working with an organization, been able to make their own decisions about the hours that they work, where they work. They had a lot of autonomy and they truly were an independent contractor. But as time has gone on, the nature and degree of the control from the organization who's really employing them now has become so much so that this independent contractor truly is not able to make their own independent decisions anymore. They're not able to decide what hours they work or where they work and what clients they take on. So it does change. And I think we assume once that they are classified as an independent contractor, there's always an independent contractor, but that's not the case. And I think some organizations get caught up in that as well. Um, and because there isn't a clear-cut definition, um, it depends on the degree to which things are happening. So that gets confusing uh, for folks. I also think, 
that we need to remind everybody to keep very good records of what your independent contractors are doing so that you can audit those records for one to make sure that they truly are staying as independent contractors but also because um, when the department of labor comes in and they do make charges against an organization for violating this particular standard, they often will include the lack of keeping accurate records and lack of keeping records um, in total in some cases. So keep those records that will help tremendously. And remember to that just because somebody is classified as an independent contractor for one job that they do for you, but they may do another job for you as well. You've got to look at all of the work that they are doing with your organization, not just that that is classified as independent contractor, because sometimes they cross over. Yeah, good advice. Uh, you alluded to something really about the changes, and, and we're starting to emerge from the pandemic. We're starting to see some of these waivers expire. What kind of challenges might that present to agencies going forward, or will they not present challenges? Uh, With the um, public health emergency waivers possibly expiring, because we don't, you know, we don't know exactly when they'll expire. We do know that states will be given 60 days advance notice. We do anticipate um, that I think it is almost July 15th. It's this yeah. week um, when the PHE is set to expire. So it may be um, extended through October. That's what we fully anticipate happening this week. But what we are hearing is that it's possible that some of those PHE waivers may expire before the end of the PHE. We understand that CMS is considering that. They haven't said they're going to do that, but it is something that they are considering. So wherever the organization is on use of those waivers, we suggest they reassess that, make sure that they're only using waivers that they absolutely have to use. And for those that they are using, if it relates to items where they might have to do some training of home health aides, for instance, that's one of the waivers that they get started on the training of those home health aides, making sure that they've got their 12 hours of training in, especially if they've got a large number of home health aides where they have to get that completed. Start doing it now because CMS has made it pretty clear to us that they are not considering any extensions here. You know, we've got some telehealth extensions, but as far as regulatory requirements, they are not considering any extensions. All great advice. Katie Wary, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Diane. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com.